All right, so we're continuing our series on missing the point. We're going through the book of Luke chapter 11, and we've been going at a fast pace through the book of Luke, and then all of a sudden we're slowing down. Today, we're looking at only one verse, and that's Luke chapter 11, verse 44. I know, we're moving through. (laughs) It's because, and the reason we're slowing down for these parts of the Bible is because whenever we come across a passage that says, oh, I think we get to know Jesus a little bit more, we want to slow down and kind of let it marinate. And, I, you know, being married for, I don't know, how many years? How many years, honey? Nine, right? No, I, you know, it feels like you've been together forever, you know, because when you're in love, you know, you, just, you don't keep time anymore. <laughs> okay, I should just keep preaching. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so when, when, uh, when you get to know somebody, you get to know somebody through, like, oh, what makes that person happy? But you also get to know the person by what makes the person tick, right? Like, oh, this person always complains about these things. And you start to get to know, oh, the reason why this person does not like things like this, like A, B, and C, is because deep down in her heart or deep down in his heart, there's a sense of discontent or they just can't stand injustice or they just can't stand, you know, whatever it might be. So one of the ways that we get to know who Jesus is by looking at the things that make him really, really angry. And through this chapter, we've been seeing Jesus get, like, he's just criticizing, like, this, woe to you, religious people. These are the things that you're not getting right. And usually, like, he'll see a person commit adultery and he'll be like, hey, it's okay, you're forgiven. Or he'll see a person who's ripping somebody off, he's like, it's okay, you're forgiven. But in chapter 11, he looks at these people who are supposed to be the moral people of society and says, I have so many issues with you. So we have to look underneath that layer to see what is it that's making these guys, making Jesus so angry with these guys. So today we're looking at one verse, and it's going to be a woe statement, meaning woe to you means like this is what I'm angry about. This is how that goes, chapter 11, verse 44. It says, woe to you. He's talking to these group of people who are religious. They're called Pharisees. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. You are like unmarked graves. What does he mean by that? Does he mean like, yeah, you guys are dead? You know, like, is that what Jesus is saying? And so what we're going to do for the next few minutes is we're going to look back 2,000 years because this story takes place 2,000 years ago on the other side of the globe. Okay, and we're going to be looking at what does that mean to the people who heard this for the first time and what does that mean for us today? Now, in order to get there, we're going to be talking about two things. Okay, first things we're talking about graves, and second, we're going to be talking about feasts. So first, let's talk about graves. Okay, so 2,000 years ago in Israel, a grave used to look something like this. Let's show a picture. It used to look like this. This is from Getty Images. And if, as you can see, now this, is found, this was found in northern Israel, which is a few miles off from where this, our story takes place, but it's still in the same region. Okay, and so if you look at it, you'll notice that they're all white. And the reason why they're all white is not because they're like, you know, tombs would look so much better if they were like a brighter color. That's not the reason why they, d- they did this, okay? They call, they, they call this whitewashing graves, and the reason they did that is because they wanted to make sure that it stood out. Well, why is it important that it stood out? Well, it's because people believe that touching graves was such a big no-no, like such a taboo, that they wanted to make sure that they wouldn't even accidentally touch it. And if it was bright and it stood out, then they would know that you're not supposed to touch it, right? So, but if you look carefully at that image, right, you'll see that not all the graves are white. Like in the center of the, of the tomb, you'll see that it's kind of not white anymore. Do you see that? Do you see how it's like in the middle, it's kind of like cement color? Now, the reason why that happens is this. Okay, so first, let's go to the next slide. Because 
They're whitewashed graves. That's what they call it, right? But when it starts to rain for seasons and the wind blows and stuff like that, the color starts to fade away. And so these whitewashed graves eventually are called this. Next slide. Unmarked graves. Unmarked graves are graves that used to be painted white, but because of over time, you know, because of the nature takes its toll, the white started to wash away, and they call that unmarked graves. Okay, so what's the big deal? What's the big deal about not touching these things and not, you know, white, paint, painting it white and stuff like that? Here's the, re- here's the reason why. In ancient Israel, people believed in these two simple facts, which is this. The life is good and death is bad. And you're like, duh. Like, I know that, right? Now, but, but here's the thing. When this concept came about, <clears throat> they came at it, these people called the Jews, they were slaves in Egypt where their morals were totally mixed around. They couldn't understand what was right and what was wrong anymore. And so as God pulled these people out of Egypt, out of slavery, and into the desert as on their way to the promised land, as God pulled them out, God had to give them reminders of what was right and what was wrong, what was left and what was right. So as he started doing that, right, he, God realized the only way these guys are going to remember these things that are basic to human life, basic for flourishing life, is by putting in place these things called laws that would remind them what right and wrong is. Right, so the, one of the things that, they wanted to make sh- that God wanted to make sure that they got right is this. If life is good and death is bad, then you also have to remember that life is from God and death is not from God. And if you want them to remember that life is from God and death is not from God, you need a strong commandment, a law, to remind them of this truth. And this is what that law looks like. This is Numbers chapter 16, 19. It goes like this. Anyone out in the open who touches someone who has been killed with a sword or someone who has died in a natural death or anyone who touches a human bone or a grave will be unclean for seven days. So God says, I want you to remember this law. This law will remind you over and over again that death is bad and it's not from God and that life is good and it is from God. And this is how you know. When you even touch something that's dead, when you just touch it, just like, boop, there it is, right? Then you are considered unclean for seven days. But after seven days, you're fine to join the community and do whatever you want. Now, this is a very ancient law. We don't follow these laws anymore because this is in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, right? But that was a law back then. So just imagine, right, somebody, because back in those days, you, d- you weren't carried off somewhere for you to die. You died in your own house, right? So your family's there, and they're caring for you as much as they can. And when they pass away, the family is considered to be unclean for seven days because somebody died in your house. And you might have touched the person as that person was dying. So that was a practice back then. Okay, so let's keep that in mind. Seven days of uncleanliness when you touch a dead body. Okay. Now let's talk about feasts. There are seven feasts in the Jewish calendar. These are the seven on the screen right here, right? So three of the seven are considered to be pilgrimages, meaning you have to go to a specific place to celebrate the feast. And the most important one of the bunch, this next slide, is the top one right there called Passover. Passover is the celebration of the day that God pulled the, the, the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, and conquered the evil people so that they could be set free. And so it was a reminder of, well, first it was a reminder that they were once slaves, that they were in bondage, and they were oppressed. But it was also a reminder that God is so powerful that he has a plan for his people, and he's saving people, you know, and, and he, that he is so powerful that he could set people free. So they celebrated this every single year. And like I said, it's a pilgrimage. So every time they want to celebrate this, it usually falls either in March or April, wherever they are, they have to travel all the way to a city called Jerusalem because they believe that God dwelled in a city called Jerusalem. Now, 
It's not like today where you could just pop in the car and say, kids, we're going to Jerusalem, get in the car, we'll make two bathroom breaks, you know, and, you know, I got some um, goldfish crackers in the car to keep you, you know, and here's the iPad to keep you busy. That's not how it was back then, obviously. They would have to plan this for weeks. They would, they would save enough resources for months just to make this one trek. It will take them several weeks, to, depending where they are, to go from where they are dwelling all the way to Jerusalem because they didn't have cars. They had to make plans. They had to coordinate with other people and saying, hey, let's caravan with your family and stuff. It was a big deal. It wasn't a one-day deal. You have to plan for this for, for days and weeks, and it takes days and weeks to get there and days and weeks to get back. But it was something that everybody looked forward to because they know that they will see everybody that they love there. And more importantly, they get to worship the God that they loved, right? If you are coming from the east and you're on your way to Jerusalem, this is the view that you will see. Now, this is a modern picture. So, you know, the, the mosque isn't there, wasn't there 2,000 years ago and stuff like that. But just to give you an idea, you're headed in this direction and there's a little valley there called the Kidron Valley and then you climb up the hill to Jerusalem. And as you're going there, if you notice in that picture, you'll see that there's a bunch of squares, rectangles in front. Now, those are modern graves. That's not what it looked like back then, but that's where the graves were back then. And there were whitewashed tombs. And the, the big difference between what tombs look like today and how they look like back then is that today they're actually raised. It's like they put a box right on the ground, right? Back in those days, they buried it in the ground, and then the lid was right there. So if you weren't paying attention, you would step, step on the lid of a grave, and they would be considered unclean, right? So that's why they painted it white, so that you could see it. <laughs> like, oh, let's walk around that because I don't want to be unclean. But as it rains and as these things happen over time, the whitewashed tombs become unmarked graves. And so as you're walking there and you're walking on gravel, you're walking on grass, you're walking on mud, you're walking on whatever, and all of a sudden you're like, that seems pretty solid. And you're like, move the dirt, like, oh my gosh. Oh, I stepped on an unmarked grave. I'm considered unclean for seven days. Wait, wait a minute, how long is Passover? Maybe, maybe I could catch the end of Passover. And so you could look, how long is Passover? Seven days long. Does this mean that all the prep that I did in the last few days, the last few months, is for nothing? So, and by the way, if you're wondering why they would have all these graves and tombs so close to Jerusalem, it's because they believed in the resurrection. They believed that one day God would raise people back from the dead. They all wanted to be raised in the area of the temple of God. That's why they had all the bodies there. But just imagine, if you are one of those people that are traveling with caravanning with other families to Jerusalem so you could worship God, right? And you're like, I can see it. There it is. We're so close. Man, that was a long journey. And you're walking, walking, walking. And you're, you know, your son's like, Dad, Look, look where you are. Woo! <laughs> oh, I don't want to be you right now, <laughs> right? That's what's happening, right? And then dad's like, well, you can't go there on your own because you need parental guidance. So uh, I, I guess you're not going either. And everybody's angry at dad for messing up their whole family vacation. Okay, <laughs> so just to give you a, a clarity of what's happening here, uh, here's a little diagram. So if you're walking to the temple and you step on a grave, you might as well turn around and go home because there's no reason for you to, to stay because you stay there for seven days until you're clean again, well, the festival's over, right? But here's the thing. This is what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the grave, that's you, Pharisees, and the temple is a representation of God. So he's saying, woe to you, Pharisees. You're kind of like those unmarked graves. People want to come to know God, 
but you are the reason why people are turning away from God. Woe to you. So let me show you that verse again. Woe to you because you are like unmarked graves which people walk over without knowing it. People don't even know, and especially the Pharisees don't even know, that they are turning people away from God. Another way of putting this in my words is this. You, Pharisees, are an obstacle in the way of others reaching God. Now, we've been talking about how the Pharisees have missed a point so much in chapter 11. But then one of the questions that I started asking myself is this. Are today's Christians like the Pharisees? I mean, it's easy to look at the Bible and say, oh my gosh, those guys are so bad. I'm so glad I'm not like them. But we have to kind of stop and say, like, can we be the bad guys of the story? Well, Ricky knows that. <laughs> right? Can we be the bad guys of the story of God? And we, I think it's a fair question, right? Meaning, have people in search of who God is, finding out who Jesus is, have we been the reason why people turned around and started heading away from God? And, you know, it turns out I'm not the only person that asked this question. There's been a lot of people, a lot of people who are way smarter than me who's been asking this question. Are we, Christians, the present-day Pharisees? And so, I don't know if you're familiar with, with George Barna and the Barna Research Group. They're, they do statistics and they do surveys. They decided to make this little survey. And it was a 20-question survey. It's not a 20-question, 20 20-statement 20 survey. And all I have to say is whether if you agree with this statement or disagree with this statement. And there's 20 of them. Okay? And... This is how they, there's four, there's, there's four sets of five questions, and each question, each of the sections reflects one of these categories. So, like, this, there's, wait, five questions that are attributes that are like, these are like Christ-like actions, like Jesus would do something like that. And then there's five statements that would say, oh, these are the attitudes of Jesus, like Christ-like people. And then they listed five other statements that are like, yeah, that's kind of a pharisaical that's what a Pharisee would do, Pharisaical actions. And then they listed five more statements that are Pharisaical attitudes. And then they mix them all around and say, how many of these statements do you agree with? And they, 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 they surveyed a random group of Christians throughout the United States. I'm going to give you some example questions of this to see how you guys <laughs> measure up. Okay, and if I were you, I would not shout out your answer because if you answer wrong, then people are like, ah, Pharisee. Okay, so here's one of the questions or one of the statements. I listen to others to learn their story before telling them about my faith. This, if you agree with the statement, you are Christ-like. Okay? Here's another statement. I tell others the most important thing in my life is following God's rules. If you agree to this, the answer to this is your fair cycle. I'll give you two more examples. Here's one. I regularly choose to have meals with people with, different, uh, with a very different faith or morals from me. If you agree with this, you're Christ-like. Here's another one. I don't talk about my sins or struggles. That's between me and God. If you agree with this, you're pharisaical. So they asked these, they asked, they, 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 they published these 10, uh, 20 statements and said, just check the ones that you agree with. And they charted, they plotted these, uh, this on a graph. And this is what the graph looks like, right? You're pharisaical on attitudes here, and then you are Christ-like over here, attitudes. If your uh, Christ-like actions are on the top, pharisaical actions are on the bottom. So where you want to be is on the top right. You, where you don't want to be is in the bottom left. And this is the result of that. 
are we the Pharisees of today? This research was such, such a big deal to the Barna Group that the, 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 the president of the Barna Group, his name is David Kinneman, he was the one that actually did this research. He's the one that actually went out and did the survey for everybody. And this is his conclusion. This is what he said. Many Christians are more concerned with what they call unrighteousness than they are with self-righteousness. It's a lot easier to point fingers at how culture is immoral than it is to confront Christians in their comfortable spiritual patterns. This is what he's saying. Instead of pointing the finger at ourselves, saying, I'm the problem. I need to check myself. I want to make sure that I do everything right. I want to make sure that I'm not causing other people to stumble. Christians today are more likely to point fingers to everybody else saying, you know why we're acting the way we are? It's because pop culture. Oh, it's because the TV shows. Oh, it's because of the government. Oh, it's because of the way the teachers are teaching our kids. Or, oh, it's because of his, those bad friends that he's hanging out with. It's Christians, for some reason, in this culture, we point fingers to the outside rather than pointing fingers at ourselves. And so what he's saying here is this. He's saying that, you can, that if you're a rule follower, of, if, you, if, if you've reduced Christianity down to just following rules, he's saying that you can follow all the laws of the Bible and still miss the point. This is what he's saying here. He's saying, you can follow all the Ten Commandments and you can still be a, but, a bad husband. You can follow all the rules in the Bible and you can still be a bad parent. You can, you can follow everything that is commanded for all believers, followers of God to, to do and you can still be a bad employer. You could be a bad roommate. You could be a bad child. You could be a bad Christian. Because if you want to look at somebody, if you want an example of somebody who follows rules perfectly, no, look no further than the Pharisees. They missed something. And because they missed that something, they became an obstacle for people wanting to know who God is. And so the question I want to ask you is this. Are you an obstacle or a pathway to God? Are you an obstacle or are you a pathway because we definitely don't want to be an obstacle. Here we are enjoying the presence of God, knowing how Jesus wants to live our lives. Meanwhile, there's people out there who are like, we're completely lost. We don't know what to do. And, you know, and if the church was more approachable, then maybe we would probably start, you know, me, you know we would probably start wanting to find out who God is. But the problem is, the Christians are the reasons why, it's in, in some cases, people don't want to know who God is in the first place. And it's not because we're not following rules well enough. The research shows that we're actually good at following rules, but we're, miss we're still missing something. And so what is that something that the Pharisees are missing that we are missing today? What is it? So we're going to look at this one story in the book of John, chapter 8. This is how the story goes. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. So obviously this person is in trouble. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery, meaning... We call her while she was doing it, okay? So we know she's guilty. Now, at this point, the Pharisees don't just leave her there and say, Jesus, you deal with her. They say something more than that. This is what they say right here. In the law, so we're talking about rules in the Bible, Moses commanded us to stone such women, meaning there's a death penalty attached to what, what she's doing right now according to the Old Testament. Now, what do you say? It's like, Jesus, if you think that you're, you know, better than us, if you think you're the Son of God, if you think you're the Messiah, what do you do here? Because the law, rule followers, would actually kill her. 
meaning if, the, if it were up to the Pharisees, we would kill her. But you have this whole group of people who are following you, who are the disenfranchised, the people who are sinners, people who, you know, can't get it right. If you stone her now, Jesus, you will lose all your followers because they're looking to you for guidance, right? So like, Jesus, we put you in a situation where you can't win. And it says they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let me translate that for you. These people, these religious rulers, were using this woman, okay, her life, as a way to prove to Jesus that they were right. In other words, she, her life is disposable. If Jesus throws a stone at her and kills her, then that proves that we were right. These people were willing to kill somebody to prove to Jesus that they were right. They didn't value life. They identified people based on their mistakes, saying, if she's a sinner, then she's not worthy. We could kill her. What was Jesus' response? Look at what Jesus says here. Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he strained up and said to them, let any one of you with, who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, if you're wondering what is Jesus writing in the ground, this is a callback to Jeremiah 17 if you're taking notes and if you're a Bible nerd. You don't, if you don't, then you, don't, you could ignore what I just said. Jeremiah 17. Basically, there's a passage in there that says that people who turn away from God, God will write their names in the dust. And what that means is, dust is gone and your name is also gone. So that was basically what Jesus was, he was making a point by acting out Jeremiah 17. Okay, and he's basically saying, if you are somehow responsible for leading people away from God, that's your existence right there. That's how God sees you. God sees you as not even worthy of being existing, in existence if you are somehow a part of leading people away from God. And that's why Jesus stands up, looks at everybody and says, hey, if, any you, if, if any of you guys are without sin, go ahead and throw the first stone. And at this, next verse, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first because they're the ones who recognized right away. Oh, this is a Jeremiah 17 in reference. <laughs> um, first, the older ones left, right? Um, oh, first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Dra- Jesus strained up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? like oh, it doesn't seem like anybody has anything against you so uh i guess uh you're free to go where are the people who are here who are supposed to kill you her response no one sir they're not here anymore and then jesus response is a part that i want to focus on he says this then neither do i condemn you jesus declared go now and leave your life of sin this is what is really interesting about this if there's anybody there who had the right to throw the first stone it would have been Jesus. He had the right to throw the stone because he's the one without sin. So if, of all the human beings in the world who had the right to condemn somebody, that one human being, Jesus, decided, no, I'm not going to condemn you. Why? Because, and this is what the Pharisees were missing, because he loved her. Because he valued her life. Because he was able to see past her sin and look into your heart and say, behind all that sin in your life is the image of God, and you are worthy. You are important in the eyes of God, and I love you. This is what the Pharisees were missing. They're missing the fact that God loves people regardless of all the mistakes they made in their lives. It doesn't matter what society says about how evil these people are. 
right? He says, behind all that is the image of God, and I think that needs to be protected. But notice how he ends it. He says, go now and leave your life of sin. So he still does kind of tell her what to do, gives her a command and everything, but he always starts from a place of love. In other words, the role of the rebuker is earned through love. You have no right telling people how they have to live their lives if you haven't demonstrated to them that you love them. I'm okay telling my kids that you can't do this, you can't do that. Why? It's because they know that I love them. Well, I think they do. I hope they do, right? I hope, I know they do, okay? (laughs) That if I were to tell them, you can't do this, I hope one day they'll look back and say, I think dad told me to say, told me that I can't do that because he actually cares about me and my soul and the, the influence I receive and so forth. Jesus earned the right to speak commands into the people and into the woman's life because he demonstrated to her that he loves her and he doesn't see her for her sins, but he sees her for the true image of God that's inside of her. And so the application is this. Our first step should always be love. Why are so many Christians considered to be Pharisees? I think it's because a lot of times we always, when we take a first step, we always step with, I'm right and you're wrong. And because I'm right, you should listen to what I have to say about how you have to live your life. The Bible says you have to live your life this way. Jesus says you have to live your life this way. And everybody's like, I don't want to hear it anymore. I was interested in this whole God thing until you started telling me what to do. And they turn around and walk home. And Jesus says, that's how Pharisees do it. The way we do it, we let people know that we value you for who you are. We love you just the way you are. But we also believe that God loves you so much that God doesn't want to keep you the way you are. So the question I have for you is this. Are you a Pharisee? And there's a few more questions. I printed out the whole 20 questions. If you want to take a look at it later, I could show it to you. But I'm going li- to read a few more things here. Here are um, Pharisaical actions. I try to avoid spending time with people who are openly gay or lesbian. If you agree with that statement, chances are you're a Pharisaical Christian. I like to point out those who do not have the right theology or doctrine. I prefer to serve people who attend my church rather than those outside the church. I find it hard to be friends with people who seem to constantly do the wrong things. It's not my responsibility to help people who don't help themselves. I feel grateful to be a Christian when I see other people's failures and flaws. (sighs) I believe... (laughs) Nervous laughter, I like that, okay. I believe we should stand against those who are opposed to Christian values. People who follow God's rules are better than those who do not. Are we turning to Pharisees? The first step in knowing and recovering from being a Pharisee is acknowledging that you are a Pharisee. I guess I admit on that list of things that I just read right there, there's one that really stood out to me because it's something that I struggle with, which is I tend to correct people's theologies and doctrines all the time, (laughs) right? That's my world, and I have discussions with people about that, and, you know, and I'm a recovering Pharisee. I'm still working on it, okay? But the fact that I know that I have to recover from it is a huge step forward. Maybe for you, it's I don't like hanging out with people who don't have the same values as me. For you, it might be 
I like to tell people that the most important thing in life to do is to follow the rules of God. The first step is to acknowledge that we need to recover from being a Pharisee because we might be in danger of being one of those people who turn people away from God rather than, than becoming a pathway for people to God. Am I a Pharisee? And let's be honest, really, are we really being pharisaical? And if we are, maybe it's time that we ask Jesus to heal us in those areas. Amen? All right, let's pray.